so my book is organized chronologically, and it begins in 1916 when Ansel Adams was a 14-year-old boy and made his first trip to Yosemite National Park with his parents. He was an only child. While he was in Yosemite, he took photographs with a box brownie camera. So that's where I start my book. So really, Adams's very first landscape photographs as a child, as a complete amateur working with very rudimentary equipment. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to episode 29 of the Photo Country podcast, and I'm your host, Rajiv. This is a very special episode. For the first time, I'm talking to an art historian and author about another photographer. This episode is about the iconic photographer Ansel Adams and his early work. I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Rebecca Senf, the author of the book, Making a Photographer, the early work of Ansel Adams. It is an unprecedented and eye-opening examination of the early career of one of America's most celebrated photographers. Ansel Adams is an inspiration to many a landscape photographer around the world and many of them have emulated his work and he's such an icon in the world of photography. So it is my great honor to talk about this great photographer with Dr. Rebecca Senf. Thanks for your time, Rebecca. Thanks for your time to come on the podcast. Of course, my pleasure. So tell me something about how this whole book came into being. So I started working on Ansel Adams when I was working at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. And I was in graduate school and I'd been invited to work on a big exhibition of Ansel Adams's photographs that were going to be shown in the fall of 2005. We were working from a private collection. It was called the Lane Collection, and it was William and Sandra Lane's holdings of Ansel Adams, about 400 prints, which at the time was the largest collection of Ansel Adams still in private hands. I got hired to work on this show in 2003, so I knew I was going to spend the next couple of years researching Ansel Adams, and I was already working on a dissertation on a different topic, and it seemed crazy <laughs> to try and do a dissertation in the evenings and be spending all my days researching Ansel Adams. So at that time, I switched my dissertation topic, knowing that I would find something about Ansel Adams from the research I was doing that could bring new information to the field. The Lane Collection was particularly strong in Ansel Adams's early work. Many museum collections are not, but the Lane Collection had a really good representation of Adams's early photographs. And so that led me to ultimately do a dissertation that focused on Ansel Adams's early photography. Right, because we're always known Ansel Adams' classic work, the river and the moonrise and all those classic pictures. You're never really exposed to the early works, not known at all, I should say. So that was on purpose. Ansel Adams really steered people away from those early photographs. He didn't feel like they were consistent with his more mature style. And I don't think he felt they were particularly important or revealing. I mean, I think some of the early pictures he was actually a little embarrassed about, things that were photographed soft focus, which isn't many, but there are a handful. And because he lived so long and was surrounded by so many people working with him at the end of his life, he was able to influence those people about what was really important and what should be studied. 
And so there was a disinclination to go back and look at the early photographs. Now, fortunately, William Lane, the collector, was really interested in the whole scope of Ansel Adams's production. And so he made a point of collecting things that were from early in Adams's professional career. And so in the Lane collection, I had early examples. And then ultimately for my dissertation research, I also came to the Center for Creative Photography, where I'm now, I work as chief curator. But I did a lot of research here in Tucson, Arizona, where Ansel Adams's archive is. And naturally that also includes lots of his early work because when Adams established his archive here at the Center for Creative Photography, he deposited here pretty much all the things that were in his studio. So that included lots of early prints that had never been sold that he'd hung on to his whole life. So between the Lane Collection, the Center for Creative Photography, and then I also researched in collections all over the American West, where as a young man, he had been making work, especially Northern New Mexico, San Francisco Bay Area. So institutions in those areas have early prints because he sold them to people, collectors in the area, or he made portraits of people in those areas. And those prints made their way into the museum collections in those places. So there is early work in public collections, but you're right, we rarely see it. And I think it doesn't have the same impact. And so museums are much less likely to show it because if they're going to put Ansel Adams on view, they want to put the pictures on view that people recognize and are going to have that intense response to that the later works really create in contemporary audiences. How different was it? Was it almost like black and white? Was it really stark? Or was there a, a progression as the pictures gradually sort of changed? Yeah, so my book is organized chronologically and it begins in 1916 when Ansel Adams was a 14-year-old boy and made his first trip to Yosemite National Park with his parents. He was an only child. While he was in Yosemite, he took photographs with a box brownie camera, developed them there in the valley, just at a commercial photo finishing place. And he, after the trip, put them into an album, which his mother labeled. And that childhood album is here at the Center for Creative Photography. And so that's where I start my book. So really, Adams's very first landscape photographs as a child, as a complete amateur working with very rudimentary equipment. And basically, I track from that point forward over the next, let's say, 25 years, his progression through different projects as he's getting more sophisticated technically, he's getting more sophisticated about who his audiences were and how to make pictures for those audiences. And then also he's seeing how to make pictures that communicate a message. And so as all of those things are changing, he's developing towards that signature style that we see pretty consistently appear as he's progressing towards 1941 when he gets hired by the U.S. federal government to make photographs of the national parks to decorate the Department of Interior building. And 
So this progression is evolving. And there are pictures in that earlier phase that have some of the characteristics of his mature work. So it's not as though we never see those characteristics early on, but they're much more rare. And then as he moves towards this 1941 pivot, we're seeing it more and more. And then from 1941 on, it's there. It's consistently there. It's not as though every picture after 1941 is exactly the same, but he's really by 1941 figured out how to make a photograph that has the kind of drama and emotional intensity and visual impact that he wants. And so once he gets that, that quality never leaves his work. And the other thing really stands out for me in the first chapter is he must have been an incredibly fit man to carry all those equipment, to reach those incredible points of view, to take those pictures. And at that time, he's carrying huge tripods and <laughs> it is, I think it's incredible. I mean, it's quite a feat, I should say. That actually, I think, is one of the really fun parts of the book, is learning about Adams's photography in the late 19-teens and the 1920s, when he's in the Yosemite high country, so meaning the high elevations around Yosemite National Park and around Yosemite Valley proper, where he is on extended backpacking trips of two, three, four, six weeks at a time. And he's becoming an incredibly capable mountaineer. So he's working with mentors and he's doing these extended forays and he's learning about the flora and the fauna. He's learning about astronomy. He's learning about geology and geography and how things got named. And he's learning how to move through these spaces safely and to be able to appreciate all of the potential of a wilderness experience. And at that same time, he's also learning to be a photographer. And so these right. two lifelong passions are happening simultaneously. And as you say, he's working with glass plate negatives in the early 1920s. So they're both fragile, breakable, and heavy. He's working with large cameras and, as you say, heavy tripods. And this is before backpacking and camping were the sports that they are now. So there wasn't all of that lightweight gear. You were carrying a canvas backpack. Many of his camera cases were actually made out of wood. So yeah, it was heavy. Part of how he could accomplish that is that they used mules for those long trips. So you could pack a bunch of stuff onto the mules and they would help you carry all of your things. But I think it's an excellent point that Adams as a young man was incredibly fit and he was engaged in all of the physical aspects of being out in that wilderness space and making right. pictures. It was physical commitment as well as an intellectual one, an emotional one, a social one. And he almost became a musician as well, right? If you look at the second chapter, he's a pretty good piano and takes damn good photographs. That quote really jumps out at me. Yeah. So he originally was training from the time that he was a young, young teenager to be a concert pianist. 
And he dropped out of school at a pretty early age. I don't, he was 11 or 12, something like that. He, in his own autobiography, described himself as probably a hyperactive child. And so he didn't do well in a classroom. And he had very doting, privileged parents who allowed him to come out of school and learn independently. He was, in many cases, self-taught. And so he had been very good at the piano at a young age and was planning to be a concert pianist and continued that pursuit even after he discovered photography and became quite a serious photographer and continued to play piano through the rest of his life. There are even recordings on vinyl records of Ansel Adams playing the piano. So it was a very serious pursuit for him. Did that influence his photography by any chance? Like his sense of composition? Yeah, that's interesting. Sense of composition. I'm inclined to think of it influencing his photography more from a technical standpoint and from an emotional interpretation standpoint. So I think from a technical standpoint, he understood that technique underlies everything. You've got to practice and practice and really know how to use your instrument or your equipment in order to be able to move into the next realm, which is emotional interpretation. You play piano because you as a musician have the ability to interpret what the composer laid out in the score through your own, everything that you bring to it, who you are, your experience, your perspectives, your, the the way that you move through the world. And so he felt the same about photography. You had to be completely proficient in all the technical aspects so that when you were ready to say something of meaning, something that was coming from you, that was in your heart that you wanted to share with other people, you had the ability to do that. It's interesting to think about composition. I do think that when he comes upon his signature style, a component of that signature style is the use of light and weather effects to create drama. And in my book, I talk about that and I use the term operatic, that he was looking to create photographs that had both a temporal feel, meaning you felt like they happened in some moment in time that wasn't permanent, wasn't static. It had a, a kind of movement to it and that it felt emotional, That whether it's sun's rays or light reflecting or clouds or rain or snow, that combination of all of those transient elements really helped create a sensation of drama. And I do think about him as a musician when I think about that, that he understood that if you're going to engage people emotionally, having that heightened sense of drama can help connect them and draw them into what you're doing, whether it's as a musician or as a photographer. Yeah, you can really feel the presence when you actually look at those pictures of the valley. It feels very like larger than life. So yeah, I really agree. I would point your listeners to pictures like Tetons and Snake River or Clearing Winter Storm, Yosemite National Park. Those two pictures are easy to Google. You'll find them right away. And they're good examples of that kind of drama and light and weather. Yeah, and that really influenced a whole generation of photographers till today. 
You're listening to Photo Country with Rajiv. If you like this episode, do subscribe to my newsletter on Substack, photocountry.substack.com. Now back to the conversation with Dr. Rebecca Senf. Yeah, I actually, I think that's an important point to make is that Ansel Adams developed a specific stylistic language for making landscape photographs that involves using black and white film, that involves a wide tonal range. So for people who make photographs, you might've studied that the zone system Ansel Adams helped codify with Fred Archer in 1939. It has a particular look because you have dark blacks and bright whites and a really even range of tones in between, really balanced across that tonal spectrum. He used that as part of his signature style with a strong amount of contrast. He uses an omniscient point of view, so meaning godlike perspective on the scene, so that you get the sense when you look at an Ansel Adams picture that this is the viewpoint. It would be ridiculous to make a picture of whatever the scene is from any other space. And then he's also pulled way back. So you get a really sweeping panoramic view of the whole scene. And so these characteristics that we associate with Ansel Adams' mature photographs are just one stylistic choice about how you make wilderness photographs or landscape photographs. They're very particular to Ansel Adams in the 1940s when he pulls together this group of characteristics into a style that he feels will really communicate what he's trying to say about the landscape. And yet he was impactful, so successful with that style that many landscape photographers who came after him emulated many of those characteristics as the appropriate way to photograph the landscape. I totally agree with that godlike feel when you actually see those images. And it's almost like uh, industry standard <laughs> these days to have that from in a hotel room or a lobby. I think that part of the reason that it became so successful is that it really resonated for people. Adams had a particular message about a heroic wilderness landscape and the value of that kind of nature experience for individuals. And it was really important to him. He really believed in the value, the benefits for people if they could be out in nature and could really lose themselves in a way that allowed them to transcend the limitations of daily life and move into something much bigger and more spiritual. So Adams is a early 20th century proponent of the value of this. It's that kind of passion for that message that makes it into his photographs. And because people still get that, even when they look at his photographs now, it has continued to have traction with people. Definitely. One question is, why should people study his early work? In comparison to his more well-known works, what do you think it's important that these photographs needs to be studied, especially by photographers? Yeah, I think there are two components to that. One is, I think that by looking at Adams's early work and understanding how intertwined photography and mountaineering were, we can gain a different perspective of what he's trying to say in those later works. And I think that this is an issue with all history. 
is that as time goes on, things get distilled and the details get lost. So I think going back to the granular details of what it meant to him to go backpacking and camping, to the kinds of experiences that he had that were so influential on him, really helps us gain some depth as we look at the later works. But your question about why look at those early works from the perspective of a photographer, I think is another question. And I think that looking at someone like Ansel Adams, who obviously started as an amateur and became one of the best known photographers in America in the 20th century, it's worth looking at how did that progression happen? What did he do? What were the steps? Because I think that no matter what kind of photographer you are, watching his practice is useful. So for instance, Adams as a young man would try something and it wouldn't go well. And so he would try 10 more things and see which of those things did go well. And then he could lean into the things that went well. He was not afraid to try things. And in any prolific career, there are going to be failures. I mean, it's impossible for there not to be, but he was able to keep trying things. And then I think another really critical aspect of his progression is that he really used his networks. So he would meet someone and they would offer to do something for him. And then he'd really work with that person and figure out how could he use that relationship to help support the direction he wanted to go. I think sometimes people have the sense that they want to do it on their own, but the people like Ansel Adams who made it did not do it on their own. They used the network that was available to them. And so I think that watching Ansel Adams learn and seeing how he continually incorporated what he was learning into all the aspects of his practice is a valuable way to think about how someone goes from making pictures that are not so resonant with an audience, that aren't selling particularly well, to refining, constantly refining and improving his stylistic language to the point that he finally gets photographed that matches his intention and his desire to communicate those ideas out to an audience. True, true, very true. I think what really resonates in the sense that he was very clever and in terms of his sense of what the market wanted, and he was able to sort of craft his sensibilities and his work to match that. I think it's really important as an artist and as a practitioner, as a professional. I mean, these are two slightly different things. Sometimes as an artist, you may want to do something which for yourself, which the market doesn't worry. But to match that, I think it's, that's why he had such a long, prolific career. And he was a master printer as well, right? I think there's a lot of lessons to learn from that as a photographer, if you want to be successful, you know, how to match that creative sensibilities and market realities. Yeah, I think it's helpful to remember that Ansel Adams is trying to create a living as a photographer in a moment that predates things like Life Magazine, Look Magazine, 
It predates photography being used broadly in advertising. It predates the existence of photographic galleries that were selling prints as art, except in the United States, museums weren't really collecting photography. So it was pretty hard to create a career as a photographer. So Adams came into it inventing that for himself. He was simultaneously thinking about how to make photographs as collectible artworks for patrons of the arts in the San Francisco Bay Area, but then also willing to pursue all kinds of commercial opportunities at the same time. So every job that came his way, he took, whether it was making portraits or photographing people's home renovations or literally anything he would do. But then also, as you say, thinking about, well, how could I make my photographs more appealing to people who might want to buy them? So he did all kinds of interesting things. Like when he was working for the Sierra Club, as their official photographer, the tradition was that people would create an album of the photographs that they made on the Sierra Club summer trip, and you would number them so that if other members of the Sierra Club wanted to order them, they could call you and say, I want a copy of picture number 12 and picture number 70. And so Ansel Adams put together an album, he numbered all the pictures, but then in the back of the album or sometimes in the front, he would say, well, I can make you prints in this size or this size. I can make you prints on this kind of paper or that kind of paper. I can package it by mounting it or I can put it in a folder. And so he would offer all of these different options as ways to entice people to buy prints. A couple of the years that he worked for the Sierra Club, he would do a little portfolio. So if people didn't want to pick out individual prints, they could buy a portfolio of a preset number of photographs that he chose and felt represented the trip. So he had a, a, an entrepreneur's mind in thinking about, I've got this product and there's there are people with money out there and how do I match what I'm doing to what they might want so that I'm able to keep doing it. I mean, he believed that what he was doing was important and valuable. And so then it was a matter of figuring out how to make a life doing that. And it extended into publications. He did books. That was a way to sell his work. He made postcards. He made all kinds of souvenir items for Yosemite National Park gift shops. So he was really very open-minded and pretty inclusive in what he considered reasonable if you were trying to make a living as a photographer. Ansel Adams was incredibly invested in sharing his technique and his knowledge about the medium with others. So he wrote technical manuals, he taught workshops, he taught classes, he wrote books about how he made particular photographs so that other people could emulate that. So he had a lot of different threads going on in his life at different times. And that was how he was able to make a career. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm thinking exactly the same thing when I'm trying to figure out how to promote my photographs of flowers and sort of researching how to make it palatable for people to <laughs> buy it, what formats I should use, exactly the same questions that yeah. Ansel Adams was asking. Yeah, well, and he, so one of his books, he sold 
by subscription. So he started working on the book. He found an author to work with him. He worked with a designer to create it. And then they basically created an invitation for people to pay them to buy the book before it existed so that they had the money to produce the book. And it's the same thing as something like Kickstarter. It was not exactly crowdfunding, but it was a way of finding your support so that you had the money to do the project. And that wasn't unheard of, but he's doing it in an environment where in photography, he's one of the few people who's doing it. So I think that scrappiness and he was just willing to entertain all kinds of possibilities. I think that those aspects of Ansel Adams, his willingness to be so open to possibilities And to be really creative in thinking about how to connect his work to potential audiences is something worth reflecting on. It's remarkable because if you look at the prints of the High Sierras, it's published when the stock market crashed, right? Yeah. And it's still, it's sold out. So the Parmelian prints... He did in 1927, and that Parmelian Prince actually didn't sell out. It's the next book that he does called Taos Pueblo in 1930 that aligns with the stock market crash and the beginning of the Great Depression. But he sells it out, even though it's a very expensive book, because he's done a lot of research and a lot of consideration about who the audience for that product is. And so he's thinking about book collectors. In particular, he's part of two different book collecting clubs in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so he's literally members alongside all of these book collectors. So he really has a sense of what they value and what they appreciate. And so then he creates a book that fits what they want. He creates a book that's very rare, that uses techniques that are very complicated and hard to produce. And in so doing, he knows he's about to produce a product that's going to be incredibly collectible and desirable to this group of book collectors. He produces something that's so distinctive and special that this group of collectors all want it. So yeah, I think it's interesting to watch him as a young man. He was 28 when he produced that book. Two things to the popped out for me in the second chapter was the choice of paper of the book. And you talk about how when it's lit from the back, it shines and you can see the texture of the bark of the tree and all that. And you can also see the tonal contrast emerging at this point. And it's very distinct in those two prints that you actually showcase there. Not all photo historians are invested in the physical characteristics of the object as I am, but I've had such great good fortune to work in museums. And so I get to work with original objects and with Ansel Adams, but truthfully with most photographers, the specific choices he made are important. They relate to the message he was trying to convey to the object that he wanted to produce and share. And I think it's really important to talk about, as you say, what kind of paper is the photograph printed on? Is there a title written or printed on the paper as well? How was the photograph presented to the audience? Was it bound into an album? 
Was it in a paper folder? Was it bound into a book? Was it matted as an individual photograph and shown in a frame? Each one of those choices tells us something and suggests something about Adams's intention for how the object was supposed to be experienced. So in his 1927 portfolio, The Parmelian Prints of the High Sierras, he chose a translucent paper and it has an emulsion, a gelatin silver emulsion, but no barita layer. And that barita layer is an opaque, bright, chalky layer that goes onto most gelatin silver papers and creates a very white and smooth surface for the gelatin emulsion to sit on. But this early paper that Adams chose doesn't have that opaque layer. So you see when you look at the print, the highlights are the paper tone. And in this case, they're a creamy, off-white, maybe even bordering on slightly yellow highlight. And the dark colors are a warmer gray. And when you look at the photographs, when they're flat or they're mounted, you see a photograph that has relatively narrow tonal range. The highlights are not bright white. They're warm and there are lots of these warm, medium gray tones. But what happens is Adams packaged these portfolio prints in folders. There are 18 of them in the portfolio and all of those 18 folders came in a box. So you'd open the box, you'd open a folder, you'd have this print on this fragile translucent paper, and then you would hold it, you would handle it. And when you lift the paper up and you get light from behind, it shifts the way the whole print looks. And in particular, the dark shadow areas open up and as the light comes through, you can see detail that you didn't see when the print was laying flat in the paper folder. And the range of contrast opens up too, so that many of those highlight areas get even lighter and you begin to see the print in a three-dimensional way that's very different than the more abstract, modernist way that it looks when it's flat. And so in the book, as you mentioned, I actually illustrate that difference so that people can see how the print changes when it's handled and the specific characteristics of that translucent paper. Of course, the ideal is for people to get to see these objects in person because the characteristics of the different kinds of paper he chose or the way that he packaged them is all really part of the larger story. Amazing. I think it's really important as a photographer to print their work because not many photographs get printed these days. I think we need to print more of our work and see it physically. It's a completely different experience. And I agree, the medium is really important. Ansel Adams was a master at that. It's interesting when you think about Ansel Adams and how he came at printing, which was one of his true loves. And he was really invested in the printing process. So literally the dodging and the burning and the choice of the paper and the contrast and how you moved that image from a negative onto a print that people could experience. But simultaneous to that, he also was really thinking about accessibility. He knew that only a small portion of people were ever going to see his prints in person. And knowing that, but having a message that he wanted lots of people to have access to. He did things like 
posters and postcards and publications, knowing that you could have a price point for a print that was higher and the kind of object that not everybody would want to own. But you could also make a much less expensive book that if it was also high quality, would allow the images to get out to a vast audience of people. And so he worked both. He was not just the print or just the big audience. He wanted to produce distinct objects that were appropriate for each of those different audiences. Yeah, I think that's a key lesson for any photographer who's getting into the business these days, right? In terms of how do you package your content? And then when you're today, you're overwhelmed with clutter, how do you break through? And there's a lot of lessons in the way Ansel Adams approached his profession and his career, because it's almost very similar in terms of the eras, in terms of how it was. At that time, there was a lot of limitations. Photography as a career was not that popular at that time. And today you have too many. It's fascinating discussing Ansel Adam, not just as a photographer, but also as an entrepreneur, as a professional. You don't look at him using those lenses normally. So how would you summarize the key takeaways from this book? Yeah, I think the critical points to take away from the book are that Adams didn't start with all of the insights that ultimately informed his work, that he had to learn all of that. And that because of the kind of person he was and his willingness to try things, to experiment, to very creatively about things, to work with his network, to incorporate what he learned into other aspects of his practice, he's able to go from wanting to communicate through his photographs to actually being able to communicate through his photographs. And the book brings out lots of new information about who he was and how he accomplished the things that he did and how his commercial work informed his fine artwork, and that all of those specific details help restore a kind of specificity about his experience that can help us deepen our understanding of the later works. So that in reading the book, you actually learn about the works because you're getting this background and context to understand who he was and how it was that he came to make these pictures that are part of our shared consciousness of nature and landscape photography. Absolutely. I think it puts his later works in perspective and you see it in a new light when you actually go back and look at it after reading this book. That's my hope. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And how can people get access to the book? Where is it available? It's available everywhere you can buy books. So right. it's all the normal online places. And yeah, I hope people enjoy the book. And I'm always happy to hear from people. I have a website. You can find me. I'm easy to find. Thanks a lot for your time, Rebecca. Great talking to you. Absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Likewise. It was really fun. That was Dr. Rebecca Senf. You can get this book on Amazon.com or you can visit the website www.rebeccasenf.com for more details. I'll put the links in the show notes. I highly recommend this book as must reading for any aspiring landscape photographer. I hope you liked this episode. Do share this episode with your friends. 
do like us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In the next episode, I chat with film photographer Mr. Sundar Vembu from California. He's an accomplished nature and landscape photographer. Stay tuned for another interesting conversation on film photography on the next episode. Remember to sign up for my Substack newsletter on photocountry.substack.com. Till the next episode, keep clicking and stay safe. This is Rajiv signing off.